I'm gonna tell you something. I mean, none of us were like this before. I'm gonna go to college and I'm gonna prove you wrong. Mm, I like this. This is sacred ground. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. I just want answers, and I, but I want the truth. Does he have a crush on me? No. Figures. Hearing, Hearing is seeing. Is seeing. Most people will first experience climate change in terms of water. In the last days of the monsoon, the storm was furious. Either too much water or not enough. The Manjira River, which is the main source of water for my district, is totally dry due to this drought over the last two years. Israel solved its water scarcity problems in part by desalinating seawater. You are not limited anymore if it will rain or if it will not if the lakes will be full or not because you have the seawater. Over the coming hour, the global challenge of water, Thirsty Planet, an American Radio Works documentary from APM. First, this news. It's just another day on the Jordan River. A Christian pilgrim from Vancouver, Washington, wades into the Jordan from the Israel side of this biblical stream. Two pastors with the group are already chest deep in its murky waters. Homer, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. This is Qasr al-Yahud, a public park and baptism site. It's where many believe Jesus Christ was baptized. Busloads of Christians from all over the world come here to be dipped in these storied waters. Joel Townsend is one of them. Yeah, we had heard it's a little muddy, but we just want to follow in Jesus' steps. We know he's the hope of the world and the savior of every person who puts their faith in him. So we're excited. Unlike its description in the gospel song, Michael Rowe, The Boat Ashore, the River Jordan today is neither deep nor wide. It's more of a small stream flowing south from the Sea of Galilee. It's been aggressively tapped to irrigate fields and to supply villages. It's tainted by farm chemical runoff and effluent from sewage treatment plants. The Jordan used to empty into the Dead Sea 80 miles south. Now it dries up in the Israeli desert before it can get there. In a way, the River Jordan is a symbol of water crises facing much of the planet. Climate change, population growth, pollution, and overuse. Scientists will tell you that we have all the water there's ever been and ever will be, and that's been true for the life of the Earth. But most of that is salt water, and a lot of our fresh water is contaminated. California desperately needs rain. The drought that began in 2011 has grown worse every year since. And if you have Persistent drought in California drought. and the American Southwest has many Americans thinking about water scarcity for the first time. But for billions of people around the globe, the daily struggle to get water for drinking or growing food is an all-consuming burden. India is a vast and ecologically diverse country, and it suffers from water problems found across the globe. Flooding, drought, pollution. Another huge problem is the lack of access to water for crops or for drinking or washing, especially for poor people. This is a crowded street in Kusumpur Pahari, one of the huge slum neighborhoods in Delhi, India's capital. 30-year-old Mukesh Kumar lives here in a small flat with 14 relatives. He's down by the street using a hose to fill big plastic jugs with water from a well. The electric pump that draws the water is slow, and others are waiting. I come here at 8 to fill up, and it takes until 9 or 10. I usually fill up as many as 10 containers. The water lasts us about 24 hours, and then we come back again. This water is not for drinking, but for other household chores. Kumar's neighborhood has no running water. Delhi's metro area is home to nearly 26 million people, and almost half the homes here are not connected to the municipal water grid. Wealthier people often have big storage tanks that they can rely on, but not here in the slum. The water from this well is unsafe to drink. The groundwater is polluted. So clean drinking water arrives on Fridays in a tanker truck. Every seven days a tanker truck comes. Each street has a designated day to get the water from the Delhi Water Department. But it isn't enough. There are so many people here. What can you do with one tanker? Sometimes we bring our containers and we get nothing. By late morning, a lumbering water truck arrives in Kumar's neighborhood. 
It was sent by the Delhi Water Department. The truck squeezes down the narrow lane and parks by a carefully arranged collection of about 150 containers. Neighborhood men use four large hoses to fill as many containers as possible as quickly as possible. The crowd is anxious. Many people have been here since before dawn and they have no idea if there's enough water in the truck for everyone. A lot of the children here skipped school to get water for their families. One woman vents her frustration to no one in particular. After waiting all morning, we have one week of water. With this one week of water, how can we bathe the children? How we wash our clothes? A 45-year-old house cleaner named Papu lugged his containers here at 6 in the morning. He had to skip work today to get the water. I asked him if it will last the week. It is not enough. We have to measure it in small quantities, like measuring cooking oil for vegetables. We have to plan carefully how much to use until the next tanker comes. From APM, this is an American Radio Works documentary, Thirsty Planet. I'm Stephen Smith. A report by the World Economic Forum warns that by mid-century, three billion people will live in water-stressed countries. That's one in every three people on the planet. Over the coming hour, we'll spend more time in India to explore a range of water challenges that face many countries. We'll also go to Israel, which is mostly desert and doesn't have enough fresh water, but has still largely solved its water security problems. Back to the Delhi slum now, where a lot of the residents have migrated from rural towns and villages to find work. It's a crowded, pungent place, where toilets empty into open sewers beside the road, and enormous pigs feast on mounds of fetid garbage. An activist named Sonia Verma has lived here for more than 40 years. She does social work with women and children in the slum. She says many people here get water from simple wells, called bore wells. This is a problem because the sewage goes down the wells and contaminates the groundwater. The water department tested the wells and found the water unfit for drinking. But many people are unable to get water from the tanker truck, so they drink from the wells and get a stomach illness. More than 300,000 children in India die each year from diarrhea-related sickness. That's 822 children a day. Waterborne illnesses are the primary cause. Most parts in Delhi, the drainage system is in bad shape. Himanshu Tukur is a clean water activist in Delhi. Most of the, the stormwater drains are carrying the sewage and uh, polluted water, which they should not be. Half of the city is not sewered. The rest of the heart, which is sewered, a lot of them, uh, it's in old state and not properly maintained. And once again, it's the poor neighborhoods that suffer the most from improper sanitation. Delhi's current government was elected in 2015 with the promise of fixing and expanding the sewage system and connecting all of the city to the municipal water supply. Delhi's water minister is Kapil Mishra. He says in the past, politicians used water to reward their supporters. He will ensure piped water in his particular area from where he or she is getting votes, and then other areas will be neglected. So we have changed that uh, approach. We now have a clear-cut action plan, timeline. Uh, We have a plan for the entire city. In the Kusumpur Pahari slum, activist Sonia Verma is skeptical that there will be much change. She says if the Delhi government fails on its water promises, slum dwellers will do the same thing to get water that they did to force the government to install electrical service. They'll tap the municipal supply running to more affluent homes and steal it. The people of central and south India rely on two annual monsoon seasons for most of their rain. The southwest monsoon blows June to September, the northeast monsoon in October to December. But the monsoons have been behaving strangely in recent years. They've either brought too little rain or too much. It rained through the night in Chennai. India's fourth largest city has experienced its heaviest rainfall in more than 100 years. The flooding in Chennai happened during the northwest monsoon in 2015. 
Chennai is the capital of Tamil Nadu state on India's southeastern coast. The flooding killed hundreds of people and caused an estimated $3 billion in damage. On a small farm in the Tamil Nadu countryside, a bulldozer is removing flood debris. The land is flat and dry, surrounded by low, scrubby trees. A small herd of goats relaxes in the shade. A farmer named Jiala Lakshmi never expected the nearby river to breach its banks. It rained heavily for an entire month, but the damage was not too bad. Everyone was happy we were getting rain. But in the last days of the monsoon, the storm was furious. Before the flood, Jayalakshmi was growing grains and legumes. She had cashew and jackfruit trees and two huge pens holding 5,000 chickens. After the flood, there was nothing here. Everything was washed away. The cashew trees, everything. When we saw it, we just started crying. I cried for two days straight. The others in the village reminded us we were not alone, that the destruction was everywhere, and there was no use sitting around crying. The floodwaters left behind a thick layer of sandy, reddish silt covering hundreds of farms in the district. That's what the bulldozer was clearing away. So it's like 8 feet, 10 feet, 15 feet. Even in some places, their houses are buried under the sand. Revathi works with an NGO that is paying for bulldozers and helping local farmers recover. She says the flooding was especially hard for people in the impoverished Dalit community, many of whom work as farm laborers but don't own land. Dalits are at the bottom of India's social caste system. They were once called untouchables. Revati says many Dalits have left to find work in the city. When they couldn't find anybody to support uh, for their uh, livelihood or day-to-day life, they moved out of the villages because they don't have any holding. Their houses washed off. They, what they owned are goats and ducks. Everything washed out in the flood. While India's legendary monsoons can be destructive, the damage in 2015 was exceptional. Typically, people welcome the storm. The monsoon is the lifeline of more than one billion people of South Asia. Roxy Matthew Cole is a scientist at India's Center for Climate Change Research. If you consider India, more than 60% of the country still depends on rainfed agriculture. So that means the agriculture, the lifeline of the country is totally dependent on the monsoon. Cole co-authored a recent study of India's monsoon patterns. It found that changing conditions in the Indian Ocean, combined with the effects of El Nino, meant trouble. Among the major oceans, the Indian Ocean is the smallest, but also the warmest. And this ocean has been warming rapidly during the past decades. And this warming has resulted in a weakening of the monsoon over central South Asia. And at the same time, it has also led to long dry spells intermittent with extreme rainfall events. So while there's been flooding on the coastline, the weakened monsoon essentially runs out of rain before it gets very far inland. Farmers in central and south India are enduring another year of severe drought. Drought-related crop failure is blamed for a rash of suicides by small farmers and sharecroppers, more than 5,000 a year. The state of Telangana has the second highest rate of farmer suicides in India. A boy drives his cows to pasture in a farm village called Pulkal. One-story houses are clustered together, surrounded by farm fields. My name is Sri Sailam Akula. I'm 35 years old and live in Pulkal village. My father, Vittal, died a year ago. He committed suicide. The father had borrowed $1,500 for seed and pesticides to plant a cotton crop. In a normal year, the investment would pay off. Back when the rains were abundant, we practically just threw the seeds to the ground and the crops would grow. Now with the drought, we are forced to spend money on pesticide and other improvements. Things have become very difficult in the last few years. The father had borrowed 100,000 rupees from a pesticide shop and a private moneylender. But without rain, the cotton crop failed. Most of India's farmers work small plots of land and make barely enough money to get by. Indebted farmers are killing themselves as a matter of honor. One day, my father got a bottle of whiskey and mixed it with pesticide. He drank it. We rushed him to the hospital. Ten days later, he died. The problem with the heavier-than-usual bursts of monsoon rain, scientists say, 
is the water runs off Telangana's hard soil to rivers and the sea. It doesn't have time to soak into farm fields and recharge underground aquifers. So, in a perverse way, a downpour leads to more drought. One single most important factor is the reduced number of rainy days. Suhas Rajay is a retired groundwater expert for the state of Telangana. We do have that normal rainfall that is there supposed to fall. We do have it, but that's falling in, instead of three, uh, 90 days, it's falling in 30, 35, 40 days, leading to a lot of runoff rather than recharge. That has uh, resulted in this uh, crisis. This machine is adding to the crisis. It's a drilling rig boring through the soil to get at groundwater. Drought has made farmers more dependent than ever on groundwater. The Manjira River, which is the main source of water for my district, is totally dry due to this drought over the last two years. Kalapali Jayaraju is with the Telangana Peasants Union. So farmers are digging borewells in their fields with the hope of getting water. Often they don't. Some are digging two, three, even four borewells in their fields. The state of Telangana is about the size of Ohio. There are an estimated 1.3 million bore wells here. That's a lot. There are so many wells pumping from an already stressed aquifer that the water table in Telangana has nearly collapsed. The deeper the well, the more it costs to drill. A farmer who is already poor borrows thousands of dollars at high interest to dig dry wells. He's caught in a debt trap. The farmer sees no hope and kills himself. Both husband and wife are committing suicide with the hope that the government will come to the aid of their families. The state pledges compensation of up to $10,000 to the families of a farmer who commits suicide. But Jayaraju says these cases often disappear in India's notoriously corrupt bureaucracy. The most water-intensive crops grown in Telangana are sugarcane, wheat, corn, and rice. These commodities are subsidized by the government and were a central part of India's so-called Green Revolution. In the 1950s and 60s, Indian farmers began using hybrid crops developed in the West that grew faster and produced higher yields. The hybrids also required irrigation systems, fertilizers, and pesticides. Thirsty crops like corn and rice still dominate the landscape. They're generally the most lucrative, as long as they don't fail. But some scientists and farmers in India say the crops their ancestors used to grow are a better bet. At an agricultural research farm in Telangana, women use wooden clubs to pound cloth bags filled with sorghum seeds. Threshing is an ancient process that separates the protein-rich seeds from their protective shells. The workers then use a sieve to separate the seeds from the chaff. This sorghum is a genetic hybrid developed by an Indian NGO with a mouthful of a name, the International Crops Research Institute for the Semi-Arid Tropics, or ICRASAT. Sorghum can be ground into flour or used to feed livestock. ICRASAT scientists modified this sorghum to yield three times more iron than other varieties. It also grows faster and requires less water. Suhash Wani is the ICRASAT director for Asia. He says the goal is more crop per drop, as in drops of water. And in India, we used to always say we have a proverb, you know, pani jaisa paisa ho. That means you are spending the money like a water, but now their terminology has to be reversed that you are spending water like money. Icrasat promotes the cultivation of cereals like finger millet and pearl millet and legumes such as chickpeas and lentils. These crops are high in food value and also drought resistant. So what do you got here? Okay, so we've got, uh, here's some of the Indian products. So this is a millet muesli. Joanna Kane-Potaka heads up marketing at Ikrasat. On the shelves in her office, she keeps a variety of products, like the breakfast dish muesli, made from crops that thrive in arid regions. Freedom, Freedom ancient yeah. grains superbar. Yeah, so they've still got quinoa, but they've got millet added there as well. Icrasat wants to popularize the term smart food because millets and the like are good for health. They're said to be good for the planet because they use less water and don't need chemicals. And they're good for small farmers because they can thrive in poor soil. And in a drought, they are the last crop standing. 
The problem is that in India, at least, these crops are seen as old-fashioned and for poor people. What we're trying to do is actually change the image and create a buzz around it. At the moment, it's hitting niche markets, particularly health-conscious niche markets. I mean, they, they basically can be the next quinoa. Quinoa is a nutritious grain cultivated by the Inca that has gained popularity among upmarket consumers in the United States and Europe. Even if Icrasat's greener farming methods become more popular, they may not do much in the near term to help people get more water to drink or cook with. At least twice each day, women farmers in this Indian village walk to one of the local wells, drop in a bucket, and haul up water. Their steel pots carry up to four gallons and can weigh 50 pounds. We are forced to carry water in pots on our heads and fetch the water from a distance of more than a mile. I'm in a village called Ranila, where the women are fed up with trudging miles each day to get water. Ranila is a farming community in Haryana state. I'm speaking with Vimla. She's 62. It is all the more pathetic that the quality of water we fetch from so far away is extremely poor. It causes us skin allergies. The canal that used to bring water to Ranila has been mostly dry for the past two years. Villagers aren't sure why, but water in the surrounding state of Haryana has increasingly been diverted to keep water flowing in Delhi, 60 miles to the west. Ranila is one of thousands of farm villages across India with a severe water shortage. A farmer named Anita complains that she is forced to walk to a well nearly a mile away, twice a day. And her husband is no help. The men in our village don't think it is their job to help with the water. They are mostly busy playing cards or sleeping. Even after working in the fields all day, we still have to do the household chores and carry water. Indian society is predominantly a patriarchal uh, society. Male folk, they take it as an inferior work. Jagmati Sangwan is the head of All India Democratic Women's Association, a leading women's rights organization. She says girls start carrying water for the family as young as six years old. Older girls drop out of school because they don't have time for homework. Sangwan says the burden of fetching water traps millions of Indian women in a kind of water servitude that keeps them from getting more education or bettering their lives. There is a problem that they have to invest a lot of energy. And uh, uh, always their uh, mind and brain is preoccupied with the problems related to drinking water. It uh, makes them uh, exhausted. The acuteness of the problem is uh, very deep. The challenge of providing safe water is not just an issue for Indian women. Researchers say untold millions of women in poor parts of the world face the same daily struggle. This is Stephen Smith. You're listening to an American Radio Works documentary, Thirsty Planet. Coming up, how Israel used technology and conservation to vanquish drought. In grade school and at nursery school, Children are taught how to brush their teeth in the most uh, water-efficient way. They're taught how to bathe in the most water-efficient way. And over and over again, they are given the phrase that it is a pity to waste even a drop. You can find out more about this story at our website, including photos of the people we met in India and links to online resources. You can also find the American Radio Works archive, where we have more stories about the environment at home and abroad. That's AmericanRadioWorks.org. We'd like to know what impact this story is having on you and what it's making you think about, whether or not you'll share it with friends and colleagues. Please go to AmericanRadioWorks.org and let us know. Our program continues in just a moment from APM. Shimon Mishkal picks his way across a rocky beach toward the Sea of Galilee. It's actually a lake, not a sea. And for more than 40 years, Mishkal came to this beach almost every day to read a gauge measuring the lake's depth. This is the measuring instrument. These pipes connected to the lake, and here are the gauges that show the water level. Mishkal reported his findings to anxious water officials down south in the nation's capital, Jerusalem. In times of drought, the lake level was broadcast nightly on the news. 
For decades, the Sea of Galilee was Israel's major source of water for drinking, agriculture, and industry. It was said that the well-being of Israel could be calculated by the level of the lake. There was a time the water dropped by four meters. Do you know how much we cried then? It was a real heartbreak. From APM, this is an American Radio Works documentary, Thirsty Planet. I'm Stephen Smith. India suffers from many of the water problems experienced by countries around the world, and for a long time so did Israel. But now Israel is looked to as a source of solutions, solutions that were born of necessity. It was the rising tension in Palestine that held world attention. From its very first days as a country, Israel viewed water as a national security issue. Partition had brought a new flare-up in the strife between Arab and Jew. In 1947, the United Nations General Assembly voted to divide what was then British-ruled Palestine into two states, one for Arabs, one for Jews. Arab opposition to the partition scheme has been violent. The call for a holy war against the Jews went out from Cairo. Israel declared itself an independent state in 1948. In the wake of World War II and the Holocaust, the country prepared for a wave of Jewish refugees to their new homeland. A steel train brings 500 Jewish refugees to New York, another milestone on their long voyage to Palestine. Exiled by Hitler, they went to Shanghai. Today, after crossing the Pacific, they end the journey across the states from San Francisco. Greetings with friends are cut short until Ellis Island, Last stop before their Atlantic crossing and home. Israel had a surging population and enemies at its borders. So access to a reliable freshwater supply was critical for the new state. Israel is 60% desert. The rest of the country is semi-arid. Seth Siegel is the author of a book about Israel and water titled Let There Be Water. The country has one and only one freshwater lake, the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus famously walked. And it has a couple of underground aquifers, And it has a few rivers, most of which only run for a few days a year during the winter rains. And that is pretty much the water resources of the country. And when they realized that, they made the decision that they would have to go outside the ordinary course of sourcing water. They'd have to go beyond capturing rain and have to go beyond using their lake water and go beyond using what they could from their aquifers and find new sources of water. Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, was determined to tap the Mediterranean. Siegel says at the time, large-scale desalination was still science fiction, so Israel began experimenting. The effort went on for decades. Finally, a prolonged drought in the 1990s spurred the government to build a series of plants along the coast, just as Ben-Gurion had envisioned. These pumps, they are very quiet, as you see. They are taking this water up. This is the Soric desalination plant near Tel Aviv. It's about a mile from the Mediterranean coast. Since 2013, Sorek has been turning seawater into freshwater. The Israeli firm IDE Technologies built the plant and runs it on contract for the government. Engineer Miriam Figal gives me a tour. So, first of all, where we are now, it is the intake, where the water goes in through piped, uh, very big pipes, uh, 3.2 meters diameter. Really big pipes. The pipes are big enough for a basketball player to stand up in comfortably. Sorek desalinates 800 million gallons of Mediterranean seawater each day. That's 16 million bathtubs of water. Since seawater is full of all kinds of stuff, it goes through a series of grates to screen out the flotsam, then to a system of big filtering tanks. This is basically a sort of a medium-sized swimming pool that's got some water in it, and below that is a lot of sand, which is a you know, an age-old filtering process. I mean, after all, that's what the ground is in a lot of places. Very natural, very natural. And so the big particles kind of clump together, they get caught by the sand, and the water that comes out is clean. Exactly. Clean, but still salty. Salt molecules are smaller than a lot of the other stuff in seawater. So the next stage is a giant bank of specially designed filters with tight coils of polymer membranes. They let water molecules through, but trap the salt. Each membrane is very thin. So if I was looking at it, would it be thicker than a human hair? I was no, smaller. Much, 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 much smaller. Much smaller. I could hardly even see it. Yes. The process is called reverse osmosis. It takes about 20 minutes for a given drop of water to make its way through the plant and become desalinated drinking water. So we're walking over to a plastic tank that has a bunch of spigots and some plastic cups. This is... 
where we get to taste the final product. You want some? She must yeah, it tastes some. like water. In addition to the final product, drinking water, there is also a byproduct. It's sloshing around in what's essentially a big drainage pool. Okay, so what we see here is the end of the whole process, meaning after we desalinate the fresh seawater, the concentrate uh, should return back to the sea. This is the salty, the salty briny water that is produced water. by the, correct, the system. Correct. This brine is one of the things environmentalists don't like about desalination. It can be hard on sea creatures. Each species has a salinity threshold that it can handle. Heather Cooley is with the Pacific Institute in Oakland, California. It's an NGO that works on global water issues. The brine that that we're putting back is twice as salty as the intake water, uh, and many species just aren't adapted to that. Cooley says desalination can also use up to four times the energy required to pump from conventional sources. Because it uses so much energy, it's generating greenhouse gas emissions, and that, of course, is exacerbating climate change. The Tel Aviv-based Israel Union for Environmental Defense criticizes the country's reliance on desalination, saying it has caused Israel to grow lax in protecting natural water sources. The union's Sarit Kaspi Oron points to Israel's polluted coastal aquifer as an example. Over 300 drinking water wells have been closed in Israel due to pollution, and The way the water economy was managed over the years has forced us into being dependent on an energy-guzzling solution of desalination rather than using the more sustainable source. Israel has five desalination plants along the Mediterranean. More than half of the nation's fresh water now comes from the sea. Miriam Figal says Israel can crank up water production in the summer when demand is high and throttle back in the winter. So this, I think, is a huge uh, difference. You are not limited anymore if it will rain or if it will not, uh, if the lakes will be full or not because you have the seawater. Israel uses high-priced desalination because the survival of the state depends on it. Heather Cooley of the Pacific Institute warns that solutions that work in Israel may be far too expensive for many other parts of the world. So Australia was in a 10-, 12-year drought. Uh, They built six major desalination plants because they were concerned about running out of water. They were watching water levels decline in their reservoirs. Today, four of those plants are now shut down. Mothballed, she says, because the cheaper natural sources of water recovered. In addition to drinking water, Israel's founding generation knew it would have to grow as much of its own food as possible for the expanding population. Ben-Gurion looked to the sparsely inhabited Negev Desert in the country's south as a place for people to live and farm. Israeli seed companies became leading developers of hybrid crops that require less water to grow. Author Seth Siegel says Israeli officials also realized that sewage was too valuable to waste. They began planning for a future where the country would build a national parallel water system where all of the sewage would be captured, treated to an ultra-high level where you actually could drink it if you had to. It would be put into this parallel national water system, which would not touch drinking water or freshwater supplies, and it would be shipped to farming areas so that no or very little fresh water would be needed to grow crops. Okay, here it's the special stage for our visitors. I'm visiting the Shafdan wastewater treatment plant south of Tel Aviv. The intake water is a mix of storm drain, kitchen sink, bathtub, and, yes, the toilet. As you might imagine, the place smells really bad. But engineer Gal Shahom is used to it. He's also quite enthusiastic about his work, so the tour he gives is unstoppably thorough. Here we arrive at the biological aeration tanks. From this moment, I start to supply oxygen by the aerators and they remove the nitrogen and the phosphorus. To keep it simple, oxygen helps waste-eating microbes and bacteria digest the organic pollutants in the sewage. This kind of sewage treatment technology is used around the world, but it's the scale of the place and where the water goes from here that stand out. This is the largest plant of its kind in the world, right? This kind of plant you can see even bigger in other countries. It's still huge. But for a plant that reuses the water for irrigation, this is the largest. We are the biggest and how much of Israel's wastewater is coming through this plant? About 50%. 50% is coming through this plant? Yes. 
Nearly all of Israel's total wastewater is recycled, some 85 percent. The United States only recycles about 5 percent. The water leaving the Shafdan plant is drinkable, but people don't drink it. Instead, it flows south through special pipes to farms in Israel's Negev desert. This is Kibbutz Hatzarim, about 75 miles south of Tel Aviv. A kibbutz is a communal settlement, and like Kibbutz Hatzarim, many are farms. The children of the kibbutz are singing a song for Nadi Barak, a local resident who stopped by their class. So apparently there is a song in the States which says, rain, rain, go away. Come again another day. Come again, okay. And here we are, Geshem, Geshem, Mishamayim, rain, rain from heaven. Kibbutz Hatzarim is an island of green in the Negev desert. But when the first Jews came here in 1946 to establish their collective farm, it was a brown, scrubby landscape with just one acacia tree on the horizon. So this is the picture I always start with. Ruti Karen was a 19-year-old when the kibbutz was founded. She pulls out a fuzzy black-and-white snapshot of the first slapped-together structures. Many people came to help from over the country who came to build, and in one day... All this was built, the fence, three huts, one the dining room, two for to sleep, and then everybody got home, and here stayed healthy people. It was a very small group of, group of people in the desert. Yuri Werber was an early member of the community. The kibbutz was in very bad shape. You see, we, we worked very hard, but the results from the agriculture point of view were very weak, very poor. We found one day that we are sitting actually on a deep layers of salt in the soil. Kibbutz Hatzarim's olive plantation grew fine-looking trees, but they produced meager fruit. The community tried other crops that also failed. Some residents gave up and left. Those who stayed realized they needed a new strategy to stay afloat. In 1965, we decided to look for some kind of an industry. We wanted it to be somehow connected to agriculture. This is Nadi Barak again. And we met the guy, the engineer, Simcha Blas. Simcha Blas was one of Israel's leading water engineers. He was especially interested in how to grow crops in arid conditions. As a young man, he visited a farm, and a line of trees caught his eye. And he noticed that one of the trees was exceptionally bigger than the others. And uh, it was obvious that all the trees were planted, it was the same uh, variety, and all of them were planted at the same time. So he was curious to find out how come that one tree is so much bigger than the others. Blas noticed that an irrigation line near the base of the tree had a small leak. Here's Blas speaking in a film in the 1970s. Uh, These drops who fell near the tree penetrated the light soil, and the soil around the tree was dry. From this observation, Blas conceived of an idea for irrigating plants. Much of the water in conventional canal and ditch irrigation is lost to evaporation or seeping into the ground. Blas wanted to build a system that would drip water slowly over the root zone of each plant, delivering just the precise amount of water the plant needs. He spent years working on the idea of drip irrigation, but could not find an investor to back him. Then Kibbutz Hatzarim stepped in, licensing Blas's concept and developing a system using plastic piping and precise dripper nozzles. Drip irrigation is far more water efficient than irrigation canals or those big sprinkler booms you see in much of American farm country. Nadi Barak says drip irrigation also helped with the problem of salty soil at the kibbutz by forcing the salt away from the roots. You know, at that time we grew, we had an orchard here. We grew apricots, pears, peaches. And the results were amazing. So members of the kibbutz started a company to manufacture drip irrigation systems. They called it netafim, a Hebrew word that means dripping. Nadi Barak is one of its top executives. This is the factory on kibbutz Hatzarim. It makes the drip irrigation parts. This machine is cranking out the dripper heads that attach to the flexible plastic pipeline. We manufacture the pipe and insert the drippers into the pipe. Uh, through the manufacturing process. 
More than 50 years later, Nutafim is one of the world's leading producers of drip irrigation systems. It has 17 manufacturing plants and customers in 110 countries. Its two biggest subsidiaries are in the United States and India. Today, Kibbutz Hatzarim is prosperous. It has 900 residents and a lovingly landscaped campus. It runs a dairy operation and has a large jojoba plantation. Oil from the jojoba seed is widely used in cosmetics. The use of drip irrigation is growing worldwide, but most farms in the United States still use ditches, canals, and sprinklers. Only about 7% of America's irrigated land is fed by a drip system. In Israel, it's more than 75%, with the rest of the crops fed by sprinklers. Israel manages its water very differently than the United States. First of all, Israel has one national water authority. In the U.S., there are more than 200,000 separate public water systems. Another big difference between the U.S. and Israel is who owns water. In America, if you have water under or on your land, you generally have the right to use it. In Israel, water belongs to the government, to the country. Amir Givati is in charge of surface water for Israel's water authority. Givati says the National Water Commissioner decides who gets what. He is the one that can allocate water or to give you permission to use, how much water to use, whether to pump. You cannot pump here. If I want now in my yard to do it, it's, it's, it's not allowed. In other words, if you wanted to drill a well in your backyard, you You're can't breaking do it. the law to do it. Consumers in Israel also pay more for their water than Americans do. In the U.S., the water bill for most households is heavily subsidized by taxpayers. Israelis pay the actual cost of the water and the systems built to deliver it. Israel also is a society that culturally teaches conservation. Author Seth Siegel. In grade school and at nursery school, children are taught how to brush their teeth in the most uh, water-efficient way. They're taught how to bathe in the most water-efficient way. And over and over again, they are given the phrase that it is a pity to waste even a drop. Israel is for years, the Water Authority ran ad campaigns on TV encouraging Israelis to conserve water. In this spot, celebrities speak to the camera as their bodies appear to crack like a parched lake bed. Israel is drying out, they warn. We must save the Sea of Galilee. We must minimize our domestic water consumption. The nation responded, water consumption dropped, and the government essentially declared victory over drought. So today, with conservation, desalination, recycling, and drip irrigation, the ads are no longer needed. But the situation is far different across the green line separating Israel from the Palestinian territories. Water runs 24-7 on Israel's side of the border. In the West Bank, water often flows just a few hours a week, if at all. About 40 Palestinian farm families live here in the village of Susia. There are several wells in the village. The people used to drink from them. Now they can't. Azam Nawaja tosses a rock into one of the wells to show there is water down there. Nawaja is a member of the local governing council. He says Israeli authorities denied villagers permission to use the wells. When they did anyway, Israeli soldiers came. They brought the body of an old junk car and pushed it in the well with a tractor. Then they blocked it with these huge stones. Now we can hardly get water from there. Nawaja says soldiers also tore down a fence around another well. Now animal waste contaminates the groundwater. Before this, each of our families had at least 200 sheep. Now we hardly have 10 or 15. If we had the same amount of animals like before, we and the animals would die of thirst. In 1993, Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization signed a set of provisional agreements known as the Oslo Accords. Water rights and obligations covering Israel and the Palestinians were a fundamental feature of the Oslo Agreements, which have still not been finalized. The village of Susia is in a part of the West Bank called Area C. 
Under the Oslo Accords, Area C is under the complete control of Israel. Area C makes up more than 60% of the West Bank. It's also where more than 300,000 Israeli Jews have built settlements, which are widely viewed as illegal under international law. The Palestinian families in Susia have to buy expensive water from a tanker truck. Jewish settlers nearby have piped water provided by the Israeli army. The pipe is just 100 feet from Nawaja's tent. Tapping it is illegal, but some Palestinians in Area C do it anyway. Those without running water often have to trek to a water source. At another Bedouin community in Area C, a 14-year-old boy named Suhaib prepares to ride his donkey to a spring for drinking water. He straps two large plastic containers to the animal. We fill the jugs with spring water because buying it from a tanker is too expensive. So I go to the spring 10 times a day, every day. The spring is slow, so it takes time to fill the jugs. On a hill in Area C, a wind turbine spins in the breeze. Nearby is an underground cistern for catching rainfall. You can actually record, there is a very nice sound. Ilad Orion pounds on the tank's metal lid. The cistern, this one is pretty old. That was built way before we were here. Orion is a co-founder of an NGO called Comet Middle East. It's an Israeli-Palestinian organization that provides sustainable energy and water systems to some of the poorest communities in the Palestinian territories. A wide area around the cistern has been landscaped to channel water towards the tank. When there is a strong rain, 10 minutes, maybe even 5 minutes, and it just flows. It's like a river, and you get massive flow in the, in the cistern, and, and it fills in a, really in a matter of uh, you know, half an hour and can be full. Without a cistern, it's hard to survive here as a Palestinian. There's piped water to a Jewish settlement on a nearby hill, but none for the Palestinians. And the water table is too deep for wells. Orion says this cistern is legal because it was built before Israel took control of Area C. Just a few steps from the Comet headquarters, there's a Bedouin family of five living in a cave. Farmers and shepherds have been dwelling in caves in this region for centuries. The Ariam family gets water from Comet's cistern and electricity from the windmill, so the cave has TV and running water. Omni Ariam is the matriarch. She's been living here some 40 years. Thanks to God, we have goats, and in the land around us, we plant wheat and barley. We feed our animals and eat as much as God gives us. Omni demonstrates the water filtering system Comet's engineers have improvised. It's a vertical box about five feet tall. A toilet tank stores water that comes in from the cistern. A turn of the handle flushes water down into a filter. Clean drinking water comes out below. The water comes from this tap, and it's good for drinking. This other bucket is water that we recycle and use for cleaning and laundry. The water and electrical systems Comet builds are technically against the law. The Israeli civil administration controlling Area C denies Comet the necessary building permits and then issues demolition orders for a completed cistern or a set of solar panels. Israel says many of the Palestinians are squatters and their encampments illegal. Comet is fighting the demolition orders in court. Much of the West Bank sits over a large aquifer. Israel controls about 80% of the water resources in the West Bank, and Palestinians complain that Israel pumps water from under their feet and sells it back to them. Professor of hydrology Chaim Gewurzman points out that when Israel took control of the West Bank after the so-called Six-Day War in the Middle East in 1967, it built the water system in what are now the major Palestinian communities, such as Ramallah. Gewurzman says the Palestinians exaggerate their water problems and that they should be happy with what they've got. Israel, by means of water, is an empire, and they are lucky to live next to the empire and to have the standards of living like what we have. No such Arab country, no such conditions exist in all the Arab countries around. You see the point? A spokesman for Israel's water authority, Yuri Shore, 
says that Israel sells the Palestinian Water Authority nearly twice the amount of water required under the Oslo agreements. He also says the Palestinians should work harder at recycling their wastewater. If they will recycle their uh, sewage water, they'll increase their amount of water by 30 to 40 percent. They can do it. But the Palestinians argue that developing new plants is difficult under Israeli occupation. Deeb Abdel Ghaffour is an engineer with the Palestinian Water Authority. We do care about wastewater and we know that we must uh, solve any, any remaining problems, minor problems uh, of pollution that come from small stream of, of wastewater. But the main problem we face it is how to implement it under incubation. Frankly talking, there is no real development under occupation. Israeli and Palestinian officials accuse each other of using water as a political weapon in the ongoing conflict over Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. Author Seth Siegel says water shortages and water pollution anywhere in the world are ultimately the result of failed governance. With rare exception, water problems don't get sprung on you like a tornado. You have lots of warning before it comes. The aquifer doesn't just suddenly go dry. You know you have been overpumping it for a long time. You don't suddenly find that some water resource has gotten polluted. It gets polluted over time. You don't suddenly have a spurt in population. Population grows over time. And therefore, we have the opportunity to plan for a more robust water future if government is prepared to do so. Experts like Seth Siegel say water scarcity is not inevitable. The United Nations, as well as many individual countries, are preparing for a water-stressed future. But activists worry that the pace of reform is too slow. The UN reports that more than 750 million people already do not have reliable access to safe water. And in the near future, the need for water will grow, driven by population growth, climate change, and increased demand from agriculture and industry. By the middle of this century, demand for water is expected to increase by more than 50%. Without significant global change in the way we use water, all indications warn that ours will be a very thirsty planet. You've been listening to an American Radio Works documentary, Thirsty Planet. It was produced by me, Stephen Smith, and Samara Freemark. The editor is Catherine Winter. The web editor is Dave Peters, web producer Andy Cruz. Field production by Yuri Blau and Kunal Shankar. Mixing by me and Craig Thorson. The American Radio Works team includes Suzanne Pico, Brian Katz, Lila Cherneff, Emily Havik, Ellen Gettler, and Chris Worthington. We have much more about the story of water on our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. There's also an archive of more than 100 documentary projects. We'd like to know what this documentary made you think about. So please leave us a review on iTunes or let us know at AmericanRadioWorks.org. This is APM.